Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here we make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. First off, we have giant cell arteritis. It's kind of a fiddly diagnosis to make. Then trying out POCUS for that giant cell arteritis. After that, doubling down with two articles on rate control for AFib, trying to pick a favorite. And then finally getting the dose right on Cotorolac for renal colic. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the talented Chris Ratome, Megan Breed, and Clay Smith. Now, the first article, which is titled Diagnostic Accuracy of History, Physical Exam, and Laboratory Findings for Giant Cell Arthritis, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. There are not a lot of rheumatological emergencies, but this is going to be one of them. Giant cell arteritis, or GCA for short, sometimes called temporal arteritis as well because it likes to affect the temporal arteries, and it's that affecting of the temporal arteries which makes it so dangerous, because that can cause blindness and that needs to be treated with prolonged courses of high-dose steroids. Now, the diagnosis of this involves many factors. History, exam, labs, imaging, and a temporal artery biopsy. In the emergency department, we're only probably going to have access to the first three, though. History, physical, and labs. How good are these things at actually getting to a successful diagnosis? This article was a summary of a systematic review that included 68 studies and more than 14,000 patients. It was a pretty heterogeneous collection of studies, with none of them based in the ER, but I guess it's the best we've got. There isn't necessarily a gold standard test for this either. Most of the studies used a temporal artery biopsy, but even this has false negatives. So from this study, the strongest predictor of GCA was limb claudication. That's right, not even anything to do with the head. And this had a positive likelihood ratio of 6. The next two, the runners-up, were jaw claudication and temporal artery thickening. After that, you had a few other things like temporal artery loss of pulse, a platelet count over 400, temporal artery tenderness, and an ESR over 100. Again, the biggest bang for your buck is going to be limb claudication, jaw claudication, and temporal artery thickening. The strongest negative predictor was an ESR less than 40 millimeters per hour. The other good negative predictors were a CRP less than 2.4 and age less than 70. So there's not going to be a perfect test. The best things are really going to be imaging and biopsy, but even those are fallible. In the emergency department, really consider GCA with any of the symptoms that I mentioned above and ensure quick follow-up and start treatment. In a spoonful, no single test is perfect for giant cell arteritis to be ruled in or out, but your history, exam, and labs can help you feel more confident about starting that treatment quickly. Now, the second article, which was titled The Role of Vascular Ultrasound in Managing Giant Cell Arteritis in Ophthalmology out of the journal Survey of Ophthalmology. So, speaking of that GCA diagnosis dilemma, lo and behold, POCUS might even be able to help there. Which is great, really, because I don't get to put probes on people's heads very often. This was a review article discussing emerging literature around POCUS to diagnose GCA. Now, everything you do with an ultrasound kind of has to be named some kind of sign, if you hadn't noticed. And don't worry, this article doesn't disappoint. It's actually going to offer up two new signs for you. First is the halo sign where inflammation around the temporal arteries tunica media actually causes edema around the artery. And you can see this with an ultrasound. It looks like a hypoechoic layer on either side of the artery looking at it in a longitudinal view. 
The other sign is the compression sign. Now this is the same edema except when seen in transverse. And then when you compress it with the probe, the artery walls don't disappear. This would be a positive test. For a normal artery, it normally flattens completely and you can't really see the walls anymore. A meta-analysis of 1,000 patients found a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 75% for diagnosing GCA with ultrasound. That's not amazing. Another single study set a wall thickness cut off to 0.42 millimeters and found a 100% sensitivity and specificity. The true numbers are probably going to be somewhere in between. In a spoonful, POCUS is an emerging tool for the diagnosis of giant cell arteritis. And then, of course, we have the third article, which is titled Comparison of Rate Control in Atrial Fibrillation with Rapid Ventricular Response, Metoprolol versus Diltiazem, out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The most common sustained cardiac arrhythmia that's going to be found in the ER is, of course, AFib. Now, even when these patients are stable, if they have a rapid ventricular response rate, then they're going to need to be treated rather promptly. This was a retrospective study identifying 573 patients, from which only 51 of them were actually included in the study, and this is because they had a host of exclusion criteria. The exclusion criteria that were used were a heart rate above 220 beats per minute, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, receipt of both medications to achieve initial rate control, acute decompensated heart failure, and interestingly enough, a lack of rate control at 30 minutes. Now, the primary outcome was sustained rate control to less than 100 beats per minute for three hours. Comparing diltiazem to metoprolol, they found no significant difference between the two groups. A difference that was found was that diltiazem achieved rate control in half the time of metoprolol, in 15 minutes instead of just 30. Remember that anything above 30 minutes would have been excluded from this, though, so it's kind of an iffy time point to look at. Also, there may have been some confounding by dosage. Many more in the metoprolol group required repeat dosages, which means that it likely was underdosed at the beginning. Also, more patients in the diltiazem group had new onset atrial fibrillation, while those in the metoprolol group tended to be on a home beta blocker and may have had more rates of chronic AFib. So, in a spoonful, comparing IV diltiazem to IV metoprolol for treating hemodynamically stable AFib with a rapid ventricular response, both groups had similar rates of rate control at 3 hours, but diltiazem had about 15 minute better faster onset time. So in a spoonful, comparing IV diltiazem to IV metoprolol for the treatment of hemodynamically stable AFib with rapid ventricular response, both groups had similar rates of rate control at 3 hours, but diltiazem had a little bit faster rate of onset by 15 minutes. Then we have the fourth article, which is titled Evaluation of Metoprolol versus Diltiazem for Rate Control of Atrial Fibrillation in the Emergency Department out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Here we have a very similar study to the last one, still comparing diltiazem to metoprolol for the rate control of atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, except this is a larger study and it's looking at two hours out instead of three hours out. This was also a retrospective study, except of 349 patients this time. Now at two hours, rate control was the same in both groups, 46% for metoprolol and 43% for diltiazem. Diltiazem had a slightly greater reduction in heart rate at 30 minutes, but only by 6 beats per minute, so not likely clinically relevant. Rates of bradycardia were similar between the two groups, as were rates of systolic hypertension. Again, this is low-quality data, but showing equal responses to either drug. 
Logically, I tend to agree with the approach that our author Clay takes, which is not to mix the two when possible. If the patient is already on a beta blocker at home, then give them a beta blocker. If the patient is already on a calcium channel blocker at home, then give them a calcium channel blocker. In a spoonful, again, there was no difference in rate control between IV diltiazam and IV metoprolol for rate control of atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response rates. And finally, the last article, which was titled Comparison of Intravenous Ketorolac at Three Doses for Treating Renal Colic in the Emergency Department, a Non-Inferiority Randomized Controlled Trial out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. We have found ceiling effects on pain control for other NSAIDs. We might as well test all of them or assume that there is some effect for all of them. Ketorolac already has some evidence showing a ceiling effect, and a prior study showed no difference in pain control between the doses of 10, 15, or 30 mg IV. This study was a non-inferiority, double-blinded, randomized control trial comparing three doses of IV Ketorolac, 10, 20, and 30 mg IV for renal colic. The primary outcome was pain at 30 minutes, and they took measurements every 15 minutes for an hour. So on a visual analog scale, all three doses had roughly equal drops in pain scores, from 90 millimeters to 40 millimeters. In other words, more drugs did not equal more better pain control, and rescue medication rates were similar between all the groups. In trials like this, I like to see pain scores farther out. Sure, there might be a ceiling effect, but if you have to give three times as many doses for the low dose compared to the high dose, then it's just not as relevant or as useful. I want to see long-lasting effects as well. But in a spoonful, at 30 minutes, IV Ketorolac at a dose of 10, 20, or 30 milligrams were all equally effective for treating acute pain in renal colic. So that's all the articles we have for this week. Let's do a quick review just to remember everything that we covered. First off, the most predictive factors for giant cell arteritis on history and physical are going to be limb claudication, jaw claudication, and then temporal artery thickening. Your best negative predictor is going to be an ESR less than 40 millimeters per hour. From the second article, get out your POCUS for giant cell arteritis and check for the halo and compression signs. After that, the next two conclusions were essentially the same. From two studies, rate control of AFib with rapid ventricular response was the same between diltiazem and metoprolol at two hours or even three hours. So really, it's going to be your pick. And lastly, consider keeping your ketorolac doses low. 10 milligrams was just as effective as 20 or 30 milligrams for acute pain at 30 minutes with renal colic. Now then, you've earned them and we offer them. We have CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. In that same place, you can find links to all the articles summarized. And if you haven't already, then you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.